Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to begin uh, a study in the book of 2 Thessalonians. So we just completed last week an overview of 1 Thessalonians. This week we're just going to pick up and keep going. And so if you have a Bible with you, begin to make your way to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. And listen, if you're here this morning and you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, uh, you can find a table of contents at the front. And then as we make our way through this morning, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. We're going to hit a number of different satellite passages that just kind of add to the study. If you want to write those down and track those down later, you're welcome to do that. Uh, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in 2 Thessalonians 1-4. through 4. Hey, let me, let me read for us uh, this passage before we begin. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of everyone for every one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Would you pray with me once more? God, as we come into this word, we're going to encounter over the next months as we study 2 Thessalonians themes uh, that Paul wrote to them in his first address. And so, God, I pray that in those times where we hear a familiar message that our temptation to tune out, to say, oh, I already know this, or I've already heard something really similar to this, uh, that you would overcome that by the power of your spirit, that you would apply your word richly to our hearts. God, we are thankful for this opportunity to gather here as brothers and sisters under the name, the banner of Jesus. Father, we pray that your spirit would dwell richly in this place, that it would invade our hearts, those areas of our lives that we have cordoned off and asked you not to Uh, be involved, not to affect, God, that you would blow past every boundary we have erected, every safeguard we have created, that our lives would be wholly yours, that this church would be wholly yours, that our lives would be completely and wholly transformed by an encounter with a holy and righteous God. God, would your spirit be in this place? Would you dwell with us richly, that we might be encouraged, that we might be challenged, that we might be rebuked? that we might be drawn into a closer and more holy relationship with you by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Probably uh, 14 years ago or so, I had a a boss who was leaving town and and the organization we worked with, every so many years, you got a stateside sabbatical. And so his family's stateside sabbatical was coming up, so they were going to be out of country for six months. So he comes to me and says, hey, listen, we're going to be gone for six months. I need you to do just a couple of things for me, you know, like checking mail and this kind of thing. And he says, my wife has plants. Would you mind coming over to water the plants? I should have asked for more clarification. I said, yeah, man, that's no problem. Like, I can check the mail. I know how to do that. I know what water is. I know what plants are. I can handle this. But, y'all, they're gone for six months. And like these, these bad boys, they're anything but green. 
And so all I heard was, I need you to water the plants. And so I, I have to go over there every other day or so to check on their apartment, check the mail. And I'm going through, and I'm filling up the canister, and I'm walking around the house doing this number. Okay, yeah, yeah, you got water, 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 you got water. Oh, I'm out of water. I go back in, I fill up the water. I'm just like around the apartment. And, and they had plants in every room. I, I, like, I don't know what their issue is, but they had all these plants. And so... I mean, we have, you know, fake plants, but, and so they're in every room. But anyway, so I'm going through, and I'm watering these plants, and, and some of these plants, y'all, they are not looking good. So I'm like, I'm going to fix this. And so I take the plant out of this room. I'm like, this sucker needs some sunlight, and I bring it over, and I give it some sunlight. Not helping. It needs darkness. Okay, so I'm going to take it back. <laughs> I'm going to put it back. And I'm not going to give it water for a couple of days because it's acting uppity. And so I put it in there. It's not looking good. And this is like the end of the first week. And so I'm thinking, <laughs> what is the deal with their plants? Maybe they need to be talked to. So I'm talking while I'm watering. We're watering and we're happy and it's just not impacting. And so the six months goes on and there are a few casualties. A few casualties. But they're plants, right? This is not a big deal. And so uh, they come back and uh, they get in their apartment. He calls me a week or so later, and he says, can you meet me at the mall? Let's do coffee. I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. And so I go, and I meet him at the mall, and we're doing coffee, and there's no thank you for the neat pile of mail. Doesn't even mention the mail. But there is a running narrative on the history of each plant and how I have defiled them. <laughs> Y'all, they had plants and if you have these in your home, never ask anybody to take care of them. They had plants that needed water but couldn't be wet. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> they had plants that needed water, but you couldn't get any water on the leaves because the leaves would just rot. And so he's like, my wife has had that plant for 50,000 years. <laughs> that plant goes back to the Garden of Eden, and Eve actually handed that down. It's like, that is a lie. But seriously, they had plants that they'd had the whole time they'd been in countries, like a decade of that plant. And he said, my wife weeps over the loss of those plants. <laughs> now listen, when I think about that, one, this should be an indication you never ask me to water your plants. <laughs> uh, just don't do that. That's, that's bad for your plants. But two, like, I needed more information. I needed greater clarity. When you have something with a specificity that says the pH has to be maintained at this balance and the soil has to be half a finger deep, moist, but beyond that dry, like that's the type of stuff you write down, like a post-it on each plant. Sometimes our, our, our messages and our communication, the information necessary for accomplishing a task requires repeating, it requires greater specificity. It requires somebody with a skill set that's not this guy when it comes to watering plants. Hey, listen, the, the interesting thing about looking at 2 Thessalonians right after we finished the first one is that Paul sent this second letter maybe six to eight months after the first one. And so when Timothy gets back and he's telling Paul, well, this is going on there, and this is how they're responding in this way, and this is how they understand the second coming, and this is how they understand what it is to love one another, these are the ways they're excelling, and these are the ways they're suffering. Paul writes them back a second letter with increased specificity. So what we're going to see are some of these same themes that come off of how it is to look forward to the resurrection, how it is to look forward to the second coming, what it looks like to engage in brotherly love. He's not accusing them of being dense. What he's engaging is a love of them 
and calling them into a deeper understanding of God's word and what it looks like to abide well in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Man, that's my heart for us over these next three months as we study this second letter, that our love for one another would grow, that our sense of longing for the return of Christ Jesus would drive us to such a hunger for holiness that we would be overcome just saying, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. But today I want us to really look at this introductory address that Paul writes to this church and just spend a few moments feasting on God's word together. So it's the same crew, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They write, look at how they address their recipients. They are the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does, it's different than what he writes and how he addresses in any of his other letters. And so he writes, and they're located within the Godhead, right? And so we see God, and he says, you are in God, it is your church, and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this understanding that's so incredibly important for us to know and be aware of, of how we exist as a local body. You see, we don't just exist as a local body, a fellowship of believers, because we all like to gather at 6801 Wesley Street at 1032-ish on on a Sunday morning. We exist within the unfolding plan and providence of an almighty creator God. So I want us to think about that in terms of the Trinity's engagement, the Trinity's association in creating and sustaining a local body, because that's so incredibly important for us. If I keel over and die off this stage, or as many of you suspect each week, that there's going to come a time when I hang my toes just a little bit too adventurously over the edge, and bam, I'm out. Right? It is good for us that we have this understanding that at the heart of the church is it's being upheld by a Trinitarian God. And so we recognize that God the Father, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing them and he's addressing any number of issues within this local body. But within this, he writes to them and he begins to engage over what God has done and how God is orchestrating. And what we see is that God is the primary architect of the church. God the Father is the primary architect of the church. He is empowering, he is sending, he is commissioning, he is upholding. And so it tells us that God gave some as pastors, he gave some as apostles, he gave some as not plant waterers, right? He is equipping, he is sending, he is sustaining the church. But look at the sun. In Colossians, this is what Paul, Paul has this amazing thing to say about Jesus and how he operates. Colossians 1 and 18. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the head of the church. And so you can see this even within our bylaws. We say that we are ruled by Jesus. We are led by elders and we are governed by the congregation. So even within that, within our operating structure, we have this repeated understanding that we are not led by a group of pastors. We are not led in in, in this real sense of heavy-handed leadership of being ruling over them, that we are ruled in all that we do by Jesus and him alone. Amen? This is so incredibly important for us. If we get this understanding that Justin is primarily in charge, or I, whoo, goodness, I say that? That I'm primarily in charge, and we all know that Carol B is primarily in charge, but listen, if we have as a person on this stage someone who's primarily in charge, then we missed it. Jesus and Jesus alone rules the church. He is the head over the body. He's the head over the body. 
And what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit, back in 1 Corinthians 12, is doing an amazing work in us. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, he says, All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Listen, in this place today, we have a, a myriad of gifts. There are different gifts and manifestations of the Spirit present in your life, and they are necessary for the faithful operation of this body. Put plainly, we cannot operate well. We cannot be effective in ministry if you, as an individual neglect engaging with your spirit-given gift meant to be used for this local body, meant to be used and explored and be impactful in Greenville, Texas and beyond. What does it look like for you to work in cooperation with a spirit who has given you a spiritual gift, spiritual gifts for the employment at this local body? What does that look like for you this summer? Yo, how have you used your spiritual gifts? Some of you have this understanding that God has gifted you with teaching, but you're not teaching anybody. You're teaching yourself. You, you, you ingest, you ingest, you ingest, but you have no medium, no avenue for pouring out. But God has gifted you with teaching. Anytime you open your mouth, anytime we ask you a question, clearly we can tell that the Spirit has given you wisdom and insight into discerning and opening and applying God's Word. You know, we have some of the most godly, amazing women in this church who have this phenomenal capacity and ability to open rightly the word of God and to say, this is what I see out there, this is what I see in your life, and this is how you apply it. But culturally, they look at it and just say, I just don't know. You see, I can't be on the stage and I can't teach. You don't have to be on the stage to teach. You have to be involved in someone else's life. What would it look like for you to be a part of a small group? And every week when we're going through sermon-based questions, you just say, listen, I heard Matt say this, and I'm reading this word. This is what God is telling me on the basis of it. What would it look like for you to employ your gift? Think about how much richer, how much more vibrant, how much more impactful we could be if we're a group of people who say, I want to leverage everything God has given me to be impactful in this body so that the nations might declare that Jesus and Jesus alone is God. What would that look like? So Paul says, this is who you are. You are in God. People of Ridgecrest, this is where we are. We are in God. Or operated and orchestrated by the Father through the blood of the Son and held fast through the inner working of the Spirit. And to this church, he extends this amazing prayer. Now listen, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote to them and he says, listen, me and the trio, the trio I'm a part of, we extend you grace and peace. But look at how he changes it here in 2 Thessalonians. He says, grace you in peace, not from us, but from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul recognizes that to a church in the midst of chaos, that to a church in the midst of oppression, they need to have this fresh reminder. They need to have this fresh infusion. They need to be recipients of grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to think on that for a moment. How have we come to receive grace? How have we come to receive grace, to be recipients of grace? Paul, writing in Ephesians 2 and 8, says, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Everybody say grace. grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It could be 
that in a church doing well, standing up against adversity, that they begin to have this idea that, yo, we've got this. Like, we're so good. We're so accomplished. We're so exceedingly awesome at overcoming adversity that they forget to remember that the only reason they're able to stand up, to put their pant legs on one at a time, is because God's grace is upholding them. This is why Paul's so incredibly clear to write and say, it is not on the basis of your works. It is through God's grace. Man, let us never be a people who move beyond the awareness that we are desperately in need of God's grace, not just for our saving, but for our sustaining. We've received his grace through the blood of Jesus, but look at what we've also received. Back in the book of Colossians, back in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 1 and 20, in 1 and 20, speaking of Jesus, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ's cross. Pressing on, it says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. For what purpose? That we might be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. You have peace today. You have peace today not because you've quit rebelling against God. Our flesh always calls for a steady rebellion. Primarily on offer for you today is a peace won for you through the blood of Jesus. See, the Bible paints this wonderful picture that we have this holy and righteous God in heaven, that he created all things, that humanity rebelled against him, and that in the middle of that rebellion, God began seeking the heart of humanity. And God allowed for the possibility of humanity being restored into right relationship with God through the sacrifice of his son. So check this out. God in all his justice was ready to punish humanity for sin. And Christ, in all his righteousness and sinlessness, bore the penalty for your sin and my sin on the cross. This is how we have peace. Do you ever have any relationships that, like, you, you, you want peace, and so peace looks like this armistice. It looks like an agreement no longer to engage in animosity one to another. This is not what's been happening. It's not a brokered peace. Jesus sacrificially died so that you might experience peace with God. What does peace look like for you? Just as you're equipped and engaged and led along and sustained by the power of God's grace, this reminder that even in the midst of my rebellion, even in the midst of my wayward heart, that even in the midst of my failures and all the various things the enemy might want to bring to bear on me, it's this reminder. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. What God wants you to experience today, what God wants you to experience tomorrow when you walk into your place of employment and your boss just barks all over you and just rains down fury on you, is peace. Peace that comes from an understanding that you are homesick for a country you've never been to. And a peace that covers every transgression you'll ever experience. Because it's a peace that covers the most impactful, important relationship you could ever be a part of. God has given to you his peace, his shalom, through the blood of Jesus. And that's Paul's prayer. 
for these Thessalonians dealing with grief and dealing with anxiety and dealing with stress and pressure and disappointment and backsliding in their grief. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's my prayer for us as a body. And look in three, th- 3 and 4. Paul transitions to a point of prayer. He transitions to a point of prayer and thanksgiving. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 12, Paul had a prayer that was really similar to this. This is what he had said back then. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And then in verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. What's his prayer here? What's he saying here? We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. What else is happening? You have love for every one of you, and it's increasing. Essentially, what we see here is that thing which Paul prayed for them a year in advance is true of them today. Y'all, this is great news. Like What we see in the book of 2 Thessalonians is that the prayer request Paul had for them six months prior, a year prior, has come true, and he's writing and essentially saying, listen, that we're so incredibly bold over and thankful to God because he's done something amazing, supernatural, miraculous in you. The thing we prayed for you is now true of you. The thing we prayed for you is now true of you. Listen, I, I don't know how you record your prayers, and maybe you're haphazard, and maybe prayer for you is this, this kind of ritual routine at night when you sit down for dinner because you're terrified of indigestion or whatever that looks like. But my encouragement to you would be that you would engage and examine and think of prayer as communion with a holy God. And then even more than just communion and engagement with the holy God of the universe, that prayer for you would be an opportunity to engage in recording and reflecting upon God's faithfulness. Think about it like this. Think about it like this. Say back in uh, March of 2020 and the whole world's just going crazy. You began to pray and say, God, help me to grow in my trust for you. Help me to grow in my trust for you over my job. You lose your job. Help me to grow in my trust for you over my health. You get sick. Help me to grow in my trust for you and my family. A family member dies. You go through the grief. You go through the difficulty. You go through the uh, the adverse effects on your own health. Three, six, nine months later, you're beginning to see how God is using the testimony of your difficulty to impact the lives of the people around you. That's a gift you can't have if you don't record it. That's a gift, that's an experience that you can't have if you don't record it, don't write it down. What would it look like to you in order to be thankful to God for answering your prayers? Many of us. The way we engage in prayer is so haphazard. It's so unthoughtful that there's no way that you're able to evaluate that. One of the most amazing things that I have the opportunity to do is to sit down with saints when they're talking about their spouse's service and they're able to look at their spouse's prayer journal to talk about their journey through cancer, to talk about their journey through joblessness, to talk about their journey through difficulties in their marriage. And they can point back time and again and look at the faithfulness of God. To see the marginal notes they make in the Bible. And then they get into Lamentations 3 and they're saying, great is your faithfulness. 
And they have all these little notes with dates that say, on 310, God is faithful. My mom transitioned to glory. That on 4-8, God is faithful. I recovered from cancer. Paul wants these Thessalonians to know. And he implicitly communicates to them the necessity of recording prayer so we might have opportunity to rejoice at God's faithfulness. Paul writes, he says, listen, when we see the way God moves in your life, we are compelled to thank God. Do you notice here that Paul isn't writing and saying, Thessalonians, I'm so thankful for you? What's he say there? He says, we thank God. For you, brothers, because you are in some sense worthy, or he is worthy of our thanks. And look at what he bases it on. He says, it's because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, he doesn't say in any of these things that they have perfected. Like, if he wanted to say that, he could. He could say, we're thankful to God because your faith is telos. It is at the end. It has arrived. It is perfected for all things. But he uses the present tense to give us the understanding that they are on this trajectory of growing in faithfulness. It's growing abundantly more and more and more. And he says, your love for everyone is growing more and it's increasing. How do we know if we're loving one another more? How do we know if we're loving one another more? We know if we're loving one another more if we are growing in our love. How do you know if you're growing in your love? You have to set a baseline according to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life. What does it look like for me to love well? What does it look like for me to love right now? And as I grow in my love of others... As God introduces people into your life that are extra grace needed, that as God introduces people and situations and scenarios into your life that make it more difficult for you to love, and you're recording these things, and you're reflecting these things, and you're depending upon God, He, through the Spirit, is loving them well. That's what it looks like. Are you willing to engage in it? Are you willing to engage in it? I'm not saying you have to have a perfect relationship with everybody. We have UT and Aggie fans here. Listen, we have people in cowboy country that love any other number of, of, of uh, teams. And I, I think that's just anathema here. Listen, I don't even like professional football. I think it's super boring. What would it look like for you to grow in the love of everyone? What would it look like for us to do this? Now, this is where it really gets crazy. Paul writes to this group of people in Thessalonia. But for us to be satisfied for this type of expansion of our love as just this one local body, boy, that's anemic. That's anemic. What we want this to look like, what I want this to look like, is our love across socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, denominational boundaries in this community. Is full and replete. I want it to spill over. Like I want us to be so incredibly captivated and caught up as a body of believers that when we hear that another local church has lost their pastor, that they're struggling with their budget, 
that there's some conflict going on, that it causes us collectively as a body to lose sleep. Because we just can't stand that thought. It, like It's personally irritating to us. Our spirit is conflicted. We are vexed. We are overcome with angst. And so what do we do in the middle of that? We hit our knees and pray that our love would spill over to there. And we look for opportunities not to engage in gathering information. Y'all, did you hear about their pastor? Mm-hmm. Took a pretty nice vacation. Mm-hmm. To Disney World. He loves Satan. <laughs> what would it look like, y'all? In a community overrun with churches? In a community overrun with churches? If we would truly love one another well, there's no limit to what we could accomplish together. Let us commit to this. Let us join in this prayer that Paul has for these Thessalonians. Now, Paul's reflecting on this. He's seeing this in them and recognizing this is true of them. And so essentially he says, listen, man, your faith is just going to town. It's doing so well. Your love for one another is so incredible that all I can do in the middle of this is just tell everybody about you. Be caught up in boasting and over and over and over again. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. When people boast about churches today, when pastors boast about their church, it's typically something like this, y'all, our budget is, is, is just doing amazing. Our budget is operating at 15% ahead. Our giving profile looks like this. Our attendance is doing this number. Our, our latest facilities plan is doing this. Our long-term planning and strategy is doing this. We sent this number of people. It looks like this. And so everything is centered on and reflecting on an increase. Very rarely... Will you ever hear someone step up and say, y'all, let me boast for a little bit. It is terrible. It is awful. We are suffering. We are being persecuted. The local government in the area is incredibly oppressive. They're out there. They're just measuring our parking spots and saying they're not big enough. They're, they're saying our right-of-way is wrong. They're saying all these various things are awful. Very rarely do we find people in the middle of these things saying, let me boast about the difficulty." This is what Paul says. Why? Why do you think he's boasting about this? Because it's in the difficulties that reveals their dependence upon God. Good night. The difficulty reveals their dependence upon God. Not their success. Not their relative ease. And Paul just writes and says, things are great. Things are wonderful for you. You know, glory be to God. But instead, Paul says, things are terrible in your midst, in your gathering, coming around. And we're boasting. Because what we find is that you are remaining faithful even in the middle of these things. You know, Jesus, in Matthew 5, had prepared the heart of the church to experience the difficulties of life. In Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What's our response meant to be? What's our response meant to be? He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus' brother James 
borrowing from the logic of his brother. In James 1, 3, and 4, this is what he wrote. Starting in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you are aware, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in Are we willing to face difficulties? The best window we've got is about two years old. How we as a local body endured what we considered to be difficult. And the great tragedy for me is when I go back and reflect on how we did during COVID, it's a mixed bag. We had these pastoral initiatives where we recruited everybody to reach out and engage, and every week we were making contact with every member and every close visitor. And that's amazing. Like we, our intent in that was we never want anybody to be able to get to the point where they have to express need. We want to anticipate need, and we want to head it off. Y'all, that's beautiful. That should be regular. It should be our regular mode of engagement. It's not, so we have room to grow. But what else did it reveal? What we saw culturally, and what we saw not just as this church, but what we saw as a collection of churches, that when we faced difficulty, that the vast majority of us moved towards an individual response. We moved to self-preservation. We moved to an exalting of our own opinions. And we moved to thinking that our way was right, and anybody who disagreed with us must be wrong. Difficulty reveals where we are. My prayer is that two years post, that we're moving past that. My fear is if it comes back up again in some other form or fashion, that it's going to be very much the same thing. I feel like I've got PTSD as we head to 2024 with the thought of another presidential election, and I'm just thinking, please, 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 not another pandemic to go with it. What would the heart of God have you to do as you personally reflect upon the last experience of difficulty that you went through, what did that reveal about your faith in the Lord? What did that reveal in you about your love for those around you? We've got to reflect on this. We've got to think on it individually, for sure, but we've got to think about it corporately as a body. I want to see us grow, like numerically, whatever. But I want to see your relationship with Jesus incredibly so far surpass the relationship you had with Jesus last year. That is my constant goal for you. That is my constant goal for me and my family. I want to see you grow in the Lord. I want to see us grow in the Lord. I want to see him magnified. I want to see our steadfastness in faith in all of our persecutions and all of our affliction. I want to see us take up this eyesight that the author of Hebrews gives us in Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. And this is where we'll end. He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let me pray for us. God, help us to look to Jesus in all things. Help us to set our eye upon Jesus. God, as we enter into this time to reflect, to take the Lord's Supper, God, I pray that we would entrust our hearts to you. That we wouldn't see ourselves entering difficulty, see ourselves suffering, and be tempted to believe that it's pointless. But God, I pray that in line with James, that we would count it all joy when we encounter, when we meet various trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And I so desperately want us to be held steadfast in you, dependent upon your grace, living in the embrace of your peace. God, would you help that to be true of us as a local body? God, we want to come to you and pray for any in this room or in this hearing who do not know your son, Jesus. They've heard of him. They know something of the Bible, but they know nothing of his forgiveness. So God, we pray for the salvation of the lost. We pray for the holiness, the sanctification of the saved. And God, we ask these things of you in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus. Amen.